This is Brian reporting from Kodo 7 News. Uh, Tommy and Bryn, you just saw Battle in Seattle. What are your impressions? Incredible film. Uh, I'm, I'm really bowled over by the, the filmmaking on display and the powerful message of social change. Oh, very powerful. So much social change in that movie. Do you guys think that Andre 3000 was negate, er, neglecting his outcast responsibilities by being in this film? I mean... Is wearing some green. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Is> a turtle. <laughs> and what are your feelings on turtles? Powerful. Powerful. Strong and slow. <laughs> Sucks, a podcast about hating the city we love. It's a very special episode. Uh, there are a lot of folks here. The acoustics are all weird because we're not on a boat. I feel like <laughs> I feel like I'm hearing things a totally different way. But um, we have some special guests that we'd like to introduce first. Uh, Alex is here, a founding member of Seattle Sucks podcast. He's founding host, prodigal host returns. I'm back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Average height of the podcast, much higher <laughs> at a different point. <laughs> uh, we have Tommy Swenson, whom you may have heard his first impressions. He's a programmer for the Beacon Cinema. First time viewer of Battle in Seattle. And um, uh, Maddie, co-captain of... Downtown Seattle da- Association, right? Exactly. Yes, um, that, that DSA. An activist who was six years old and visiting family in Seattle at the time of the protests. <laughs> an actual baby. <laughs> leading the protest. I don't know mm. who, who uh, wrote that, but as a six-year-old, I was definitely leading those riots. So okay. just to yes. we'll, correct the record. We, yeah, we'll amend the record. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. <laughs> really and, important. And Andrew Hedden, PhD student in history at the University of Washington, studying the rise of Seattle within global capitalism. Watching the WTO protest live on TV when he was a teenager made him an anarchist. Bothell uh, High School, class of 02. Yeah, we should disambiguate, huh? <laughs> yeah, Bothell's uh, always representing on this podcast. Uh, and according to Greg, you might be the world's leading expert on this film we just watched, which was Battle in Seattle. Perhaps. Hard <laughs> <laughs> to... Hard to discern on the heap of experts who want to study this. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of competition for that spot. You may be asking yourself why it, to herald the 20th anniversary of the WTO protests in Seattle. Did we watch the movie Battle in Seattle? And all I can say is, what is this podcast if not a shit post? Yeah, and also I would like to introduce <laughs> Bren and Selena also appearing because I'm not trying to silence the voices of women, Greg. All right. Excuse me? I don't know. You just shoved this microphone in my face. Um, hi, this is Bren. Oh, I can't believe this. <laughs> <laughs> hi, this is Selena. Fresh from the boat battle with the Kraken. Thanks for coming back. Oh, fresh from the awesome viewing. Actually, Selena's afraid of boats. Thank you for recognizing, Bryn. Uh, women's voices shouldn't be silenced here. <laughs> <laughs> but we are in a non-teak 
zone, so it's safe. <laughs> and with that, uh, battle in Seattle, folks. <laughs> Can you tell me the reason why you're here today? Well, basically, the Endangered Species Act requires that shrimp trawlers place special devices on their boats to prevent the killing of sea turtles. Now, the WTO, they come along and they say, well, these devices are somehow illegal. Well, we all love turtles, but don't you think there are more important problems in the world that need to be addressed? a ruling that threatens an endangered species is any different from, say, millions of working-class jobs being outsourced or the quality of our environment or our food getting worse, you're just not connecting the dots. Do you think a few signs and some catchy slogans are going to somehow stop global trade? Well, well see, we have no problem with so-called free trade as long as it's not at the expense of our human values. Yes. Because of the WTO legally Thank binding so laws... Thank you so much. That was great, Michael. Yeah. Um... We watched that movie. It uh, okay. So Woody Harrelson, Charlize Theron, uh, Channing Tatum, Tater Tot, uh, <laughs> Michelle Rodriguez, a, Michelle Rodriguez, a low rent Pacey on, from uh, Dawson's Creek. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and and, and, and Macklemore. <laughs> yeah. And Macklemore is our turtle saving hero. Also, Wait, don't forget uh, the low rent McDreamy, who was the star of the film. Yeah. One well, Ray Liotta playing the mayor. Is that fucking radio? Are we ready for yes. this? Ever yeah. since I was a kid, I always wanted to be a mayor. <laughs> <laughs> playing the mayor who got a considerable upgrade in being portrayed as Ray Liotta. Because I looked up his picture and he's no Ray Liotta. Yeah, Just Paul Shell was like a... Like I said, Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> should have played Paul Shell. <laughs> yeah, Accurate. An old schlub, Accurate. yeah. Awesome. Um... Yeah, so, I mean, does anyone else have any thoughts? Maddie, like, um, you know, this was, you know, really probably, you know, the first time uh, since you were six that you had seen any of that archival footage or heard about this at all. What were your thoughts on the movie? Um, So this is my first time watching the movie since college. Definitely the first time I saw that archival footage since I led those riots as a six-year-old. Um <laughs> Uh, I will say it really brought back some memories, all that tear gas that I had to wipe out of my eyes as a six year old. Um, I think the, in my notes, looking at the notes on my phone, <laughs> I will say of a note here that says the opening scene is funny sonogram scene, for example, um, which I do want to point out this movie jumps around a lot, trying to humanize both sides, both the organizers slash activists and the cops. There are a few comments. Uh, during the film, the documentary, This Is What Democracy Looks Like, was brought up. And uh, I happened to just watch that in preparation for this very serious discussion that we're having. <laughs> and um, I think it's, it's interesting because clearly a lot was lifted from that doc. I mean, there's even imagery. There's conversations that almost verbatim were lifted. There's footage. Um, <clears throat> but... I, clearly, that's the uh, superior film, and <laughs> yeah. I think watch that. I think Not before this. we stop talking about the movie, it's probably a good thing to say go see that. If you, if yeah, you, it's, it's on YouTube. You can go. Yeah. You can go find it. Yeah. Even in terms of just like visual coherency and like sense mm -hmm. of like physical space yeah. and what's going on in an individual scene, <laughs> yeah. like the interspersed montage of documentary footage in this movie was much more clear than oh, like totally. any of the actual scenes <laughs> that we watched. <laughs> yeah. um, the sad thing, so I uh, had the opportunity to, to interview Stuart Townsend after this movie first came out. 
um, for a magazine called Cineast. Um, you can Google Cineast Stuart Townsend. Um, you'll find the interview. It's pretty long. Oh, we'll link to it. Um, but I, <laughs> the I writer him, and director of the films. So I, I brought up this is what democracy looks like. I'm like, you saw this this documentary, right? It kind of covers everything pretty well. Why did you feel like you needed to remake this documentary with a fictional cast? And he said, well, nobody's going to watch the documentary. <laughs> and the sad thing is, I think more people have watched This yeah, Is What yeah. Democracy Looks Like than they've watched his movie. <laughs> Which probably, uh, yeah, gives us the point that Bat on Seattle was not a successful film. So right. Stuart so what were, the, what were the numbers? You had looked up the numbers. Or so, yeah. The budget for this film is $8 million. It raked in less than 900000 so 880000 Um, It has 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. And the amount of people who've seen it, I made not too many. Um, yeah. I mean, it well, is not an overwhelmingly impressive film. Well, this might require some inside analysis. Greg is a Hollywood guy, oh. is making 10% on the budget <laughs> uh, success. Uh, not in the current model, no. <laughs> no. But as this okay. movie teaches us, failure is success. <laughs> so, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, maybe we should, uh, should we go around and maybe tell like our memories at the time of the WTO, like uh, kind of where we were all at? Yeah, well, let's hear from Tommy. Yeah. Uh, so at the time, I was a 15-year-old anarchist uh, influenced by crime think and propaganda. And I'm not going to confess on uh, tape to breaking any windows, but it was pretty cool that that was happening. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is my this is my attitude at the time. If there's any unsolved broken window crimes, Tommy was the culprit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, I was there. I was you know I didn't go affiliated with any group, and so I was pretty nimble of like getting out of the way of any actual arrests or tear gas. So just sort of observing, and I think. Uh, experiencing that at an impressionable young age will leave you with no other conclusion to draw but that the cops are bastards and that like the police state really is uh, the enemy of all mankind. Oh, a unique viewpoint on this podcast, so we're going to challenge that later. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess just to put a pin on it is, uh, you know, it's extremely radicalizing to have a police force hunt you down like an army mm -hmm. but it really took a long time to sort of like draw lessons out of that experience and sort of reach political conclusions of you know what was really going on that day what did these movements mean where could we go to actually confront mm -hmm. global capitalism so how uh, did you get down there who who took you I down took the there? bus how did you hear about it um i was everyone knew this was happening man like in seattle in mm -hmm. November 1999, there's no not knowing about this. And my school, <laughs> uh, uh, my school was like pretty close by, so we were closed after the first day. I think the first day was Tuesday, right? And so then I was, no, there was no school to go to, so I just got on the bus and went there. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bren, where were you at when this uh, came out? Or when this actually happened, sorry. Mm. But also when the film came out, if you remember <laughs> that as well. Oh my God. <laughs> well, when the film came out, I had just moved to Seattle. When it actually happened, I was living on the other side of Washington in a good old town of Moses Lake with very staunch uh, conservative Republican parents. And remember it being on the TV and my dad saying a lot of like really negative things about the protesters and the things that were happening. And a lot of... Um, 
<laughs> bad things about unions and liberals and, you know, fun stuff. <laughs> cool. 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 Uh, Andrew. All right. So I was uh, 16 and I was a junior in high school and um, I didn't know about the protests uh, beforehand. Um, but when they were on TV, I was absolutely glued to the screen. Um, and I actually hooked up the TV to my stereo and recorded like an hour of the audio. And I have a cassette tape somewhere of that. But I listened to that over and over again. Wow. Uh, this is pretty wild. Um, but the, the protest impact on me was really in the aftermath of the protest. Um, there was actually a, a, a group of anarchists who worked in the teen centers in the east side of King County, uh, where I'd go and hang out, and they'd host all these discussion groups. And I got really involved in politics and kind of the social movement aftermath of the WTO. A protest in Seattle uh, seemed like there was a big protest every, every other week. Um, the police were unforgiving, and everybody got a face full of pepper spray at those protests. But um, So that was my high school. That was my senior year of high school. Um, but I didn't get... I wasn't knowledgeable about the protests before they happened and um, kind of only got involved in things afterwards. But. Cool. Luckily, things have changed about the police since then. Hi, Alex here. You might recall this voice, maybe deep embedded in your memory somewhere. <laughs> True fans. I was also in high school with Andrew. Um, I didn't really have any kind of worldview at that time. I didn't really know. I knew like resistance. I knew what that was. And I think, like, uh, to me, like, I just, I just knew that that I was like, this is really fucked up. Like, it kind of informed uh, an overarching sort of like distrust of, I guess, the system or whatever. So that when I went into college, you know, a couple of years later, like that was everything was sort of mirrored in response of that. Like everything, every protest that you went to for whatever, like Iraq War or whatever, was just sort of like the imagery, the chance, mm. the style, like the theatricalness of it was in my mind, very informed by the WTO protest. Cause that to me, that's what protest was. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, you know, I wasn't involved in it in any way, but it, you know, shaped my experience for sure. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Cause like, uh, you know, I would have been a senior in high school in Texas at the time that it happened. And I vaguely remember it being on the news, but my main encounter with the WTO protest was being a part of the anti-war movement in like 2002 and 2003 and watching like, uh, you know, home video footage and stuff of the WTO protests. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so seeing it through that lens, right, of the, you know, protest to come or, you know, <laughs> yeah. So that's interesting, yeah. Yeah. I, I'd have to sort of say similarly to Alex, at that time I was, I guess we were in ninth grade. We must have been ninth grade. Uh, um, yeah. I don't think so. I think we we're in Canyon Park, okay. but uh, I had no real political consciousness, no worldview, no real understanding of what was going on um, in the bigger picture. Uh, I'll freely admit that. I, I mean, I very strongly and very vividly remember the imagery uh, on in the media, but I didn't really know what to make it make of it at the time, and I knew knew that people were going to the protests and that. Um, you know, things were happening downtown Seattle, but uh, I had a very <clears throat> conventional, sheltered, suburban existence, and it didn't totally add up for me at that time. Yeah, 
I think uh, that's, you know, similar to my experience with it. I think uh, I was, you know, interested in to some, in unformed, very, like, uh, nonspecific ways to, you know, left ideas and, and was totally ready to be distrustful of the system and was sort of primed for hearing some of the messages coming out of this about what uh, global trade and globalization represented. At the same time, as a teenager, I, th I, I think I felt like um, the 90s sense of like the end of history, like very strongly. Um, and, you know, whatever that means, it was sort of a wall to really it meaning a lot to me or feeling like it was leading somewhere or anything, you know? So that was my experience with it. Serena? <laughs> you don't have to if you don't want to. <laughs> I was seven years old and playing Pokemon. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having so me. to some extent or another, we were all children who experienced this event through like a children's level of you know, political awareness. So it's interesting now to watch a movie that carries the same level of political awareness <laughs> and explaining yes. the, uh, what, well, what well, is the WTO. Well, look, we denigrate children, we denigrate their political awareness, but maybe we should hear from the person who, as oh, a yeah, child, led the right. protests. Uh, I mean... Truth be told, uh, before I bravely went down to, to Westlake and led those riots, um, <laughs> I was, you know, here visiting family for the holidays as a six-year-old. Um, and even though I was really young, I do have pretty distinct memories of the, the riots because um, my dad is a, was a labor uh, organizer at the time. He was a president of an SEIU local. Um, and so he was pretty jazzed about what was going on, mm -hmm. but couldn't peel away from family at the time. So on the one hand, I have this contrast of my dad being glued to the television, you know, calling, you know, different organizers, different people that were either planning on going down there or out of state, all sorts of things, trying to basically be plugged in. And then my family being like, what the hell is going on, kind of the more passive observer type. And I think as a, as a child, I was equally tuned in with, with both. And so that definitely left a mark on me. Um, as a kid, you know what's going on in your surroundings. Um, at the time, I had been to several different um, rallies. I think there had already been a statewide OPEIU, uh, different like strikes at the time, I was living in Oregon at the time. Um, so for me, it was kind of another thing that had happened in mm. in my life. Looking yeah, another back, labor event you guys were going to, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah uh. we're adjacent to, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, looking back on it, on the one hand, it's really awesome to have been adjacent to something like that. Um, I wish I could say that I was actually there. That would have been... Um, really significant and cool to be a part of. Um, I think also it kind of did help shape some of my politics as they came into formation because I think being from a place originally like Seattle, 
there is so much global capital accumulation here, obviously. Um, it's really impossible not to have it um, inform your politics one way or another. So that's kind of how it affected me um, and how it's still informing my politics. Oh, well, as a co-captain of the Downtown Seattle Association, yeah. nice to know that you acknowledge that uh, the you know events were led by out-of-towners. And that nobody in Seattle cared. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Paid, Soros. Paid Soros organizers. <laughs> okay. Well, so as we normally do on this podcast, I think um, we should like dive into the material we just watched as like a a venue for getting at some of the, the more detailed uh, things we want to talk about here. So like... We all agreed this movie is kind of stupid <laughs> and boring, and um, but uh, yeah, let's talk about like what um, you know. Start big, I guess. Like what its message seems to be. Well, well, when I spoke to uh, Stuart Townsend after the f movie first came out, um, and I watched the film for the first time, um, I felt kind of bad for him because he put so much work into it. And uh, it was genuine, you know, he, he came across as genuinely well-intentioned and he wanted to activate people. He wanted people to become activists after Inspire watching this movie. People, yeah. And, um, you know, after the first time I saw it, I noted all the things about the film that are genuinely, generally accurate. Like the, um, the fact that the police uh, attacked the crowd first. I mean, he, mm -hmm. he intentionally made sure that that was the narrative that was that was um in the film and that's accurate um you know there's a some th you know i think he he did his homework he read his books he watched this is what democracy looks like um so i kind of felt you know even though it wasn't a good film i i was kind of sympathetic to him but on second viewing i think the the problems with it are a lot more galling um, in particular, labor's absence from the movie is just is really bad. Yeah. Um, uh, the forty five seconds that they appear on screen was not enough for you, right? Well, they they appear as this like collective mass of people marching down. Is it only from in the stadium. archival footage? There's no actual right. characters, and well, there's like a dozen uh, characters. And uh, they're consistently referred to. They're referenced by the mayor and by different other characters. I think the governor at one time they say, "Oh, labor's going to have a seat at the table," but you never see them at the table. You don't see them involved yeah. with the organizers at well, all. Well, it's implied that labor has sold everybody out and is going to like calm the thing down. Well, and then, and honestly, like you know, that's probably true to the extent that like the international leadership probably did like sell people out. But I mean, like the labor unions marched downtown and shit, which you get well, for ten seconds, maybe. I mean, the most yeah. probably the most inaccurate event that yeah. takes place in the film or that's recreated in the film is this the march downtown and how it encountered the protests that were going on downtown um, that were shutting down the the meetings. Um, in the film, they have all the the act, the, the activist uh, stars, you know. Um, lined up trying to, to beg the, the labor people to join their, their downtown protest. And in, in actuality, it was uh, union members, people mm. from the Longshore Union, from the steelworkers, who were actually redirecting people to the downtown protest. It was yeah. actually rank-and-file union members. It wasn't uh, NGO, acti like, professional activists who were more, you know, morally you know, begging people to, to join the protest. So that was incredibly inaccurate in the film. You know, that is that 
narrative of um, sort of uh, erasing labor's participation in that is true right up into to the local like 20th anniversary coverage of it in the press here. Um, I listened to that uh, KOW uh, story on it, and that they spent honestly most of the time like talking to people from labor who were like, yeah, gosh, like we didn't know what was going on. This was wild. Yeah. Like it was like, it, yeah. like y- y- they could have not even mentioned labor, like the movie basically, but instead it was like literally they, the narrative they were trying to push was like, yeah, um, you may have heard there were some unions down there, but really they all just took a wrong turn. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting because uh, when you watch the documentary, right, the steel workers and longshoremen especially are like, big parts of the documentary. Oh, yeah. um, and I well, definitely and remember when I first came up here talking to people for or a guy that knew from the IAM who had been down there who basically was like, yeah, you know, we had the uh, marshal or whatever told us to go one way, but we're like, fuck that shit. The business is downtown <laughs> and they all went the other way. Right. And I think it kind of, uh, it, it pictures labor as almost like a school of fish that they were like trying to, you know, maybe get some of them to go downtown or something like that. And the mayor was trying to get them one way, but labor actually is a, you know, collection of politically organized people that have different political beliefs and things like that. And, you know, a bunch of them went downtown because they politically wanted to go downtown. Right. Like the longshoremen actually shut up. down the port. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like the movie briefly acknowledges that the cab drivers went on strike too, but only in the context yeah, yeah. that Charlie's sh- sh- uh, there and couldn't get home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically oh, to ensure that Charlie's Theron could uh-huh. not get home is why they did that though. Not political. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and, um, kind of, uh, another part of that or the way the film portrays, um, the people who are actually attending the protests is they don't have any any representatives of the uh, like third world organizations. They have this uh, en- this NGO professional um, who's like German and he he looks sad a lot in the movie <laughs> because because he can't make his presentation to the the WTO uh, delegates or something. He's from Doctors Without Borders in the movie, but they don't have anybody. You know, there was thousands of people who came from outside of the United States to attend the protest, and there's. Um, there's a single delegate they ha- they portray at the end who's standing up against, standing up to the WTO, which is a somewhat accurate depiction of what actually happened within the meetings. Um, but there's no like sympathetic betrayal to the extent that you get with these this like do-gooder activist Jay yep. character who is I think the the worst thing about the movie. <laughs> this is Macklemore. This is Macklemore, <laughs> and um, I mean the and I was I actually watching this a second time. I was struck how the opening scene is this this um, white do-gooder guy saving another saving a woman of color who's falling, you know, off the <laughs> the crane, and it was it just kind of sets up the dynamic that carries throughout the movie about how this guy is so driven and the leader and everybody. As people were pointing out during the movie, when he's not in the room, all the other people are going, "Where's Jay? No, they, Where's they're Jay?" Literally just talking about him. It's amazing. And his, his nuts. And, and what they're doing is dropping a banner that has uh, a big arrow that's like the people forward and <laughs> WTO backwards. And from that moment uh, on, the uh, inevitable downfall of the WTO is totally assured. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the banner drop to see at the beginning is everything you would imagine from like uh, Hollywood liberalism in the sense that, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right in the sense that is 
he drops down to save Michelle Rodriguez. And then literally as he's doing it, like Andre 3000, like leans over to give him like a thumbs up. <laughs> and he's like, yep, black and Latino photo shirt. <laughs> We're good. <laughs> like, you know, it could have been like a, a Hillary Clinton campaign ad or something, you know, but it's, it's fucking embarrassing in retrospect, more embarrassing, embarrassing at the time. What's though. even worse is they, yeah. the next very next scene, they hook up. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah. Okay. So yeah, everyone wants, to fuck him yeah the the biggest glaring hole in this movie is who are these activists it never establishes what they are they are they an an environmental group are they just i mean they're like in a quote-unquote affinity group i think is the about the extent of it well he says we have affinity groups are doing this okay but they're unnamed yeah and Andre I assume 3000 Sor- does Soros, wear the sea Soros organized activists. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Completely baffling. I, I love how they depict the activists as living in this like warehouse, fully furnished warehouse. And at one point, this Macklemore character named Jay says, uh, we are nonviolent and we make uh, decisions completely by consensus and everyone like cheers. <laughs> It's like BitTorrent. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, <laughs> um, sure. And like, there's a bunch of stickers that say like WTO <laughs> no. And it just, the whole thing seems really unrealistic. And I think this may be like around the scene where Michelle Rodriguez and Jay hook up. And it's on bunk beds. It, yeah, really on the bunk beds. The bunk on beds. the bunk beds. It's a really important part of that scene. It is. It's really so weird. The it's a other collective. big mystery left unanswered by this movie is what is the WTO? Yeah, <laughs> guys it doesn't give you a lot of hints. That was the funniest thing, though. Is like the beginning of the movie was this like animation where it's like let's let's break it down. There's a world. It's Earth. There are countries uh-huh. on Earth. Like if you don't know that going into the movie, like mm-hmm. what are you gonna get out of this? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and it really, I think it speaks to his sort of his like mindset. He was like. No man, we're gonna get people that don't even know what the world is. And it's a collection of there's a thing called trade, and we're gonna we're gonna from first principles, we're gonna uh, teach them uh, resistance and stuff like that. And I think like it makes a lot more sense when you think of it. Like, imagine if you could make a movie for someone that had no concept of any of these things. Because if you had any concept... We want to explain them, though, which the movie doesn't yeah. do. It, well, I think that cuts to the weakness of the film, right? I mean, there's like... So they have the brief explanation of the W2 at the beginning that nobody who doesn't understand it or shows up five minutes late is going to get. But they don't <laughs> ever expound on it in the film. I mean, you're totally right. Like, it's just left to hang at the beginning. And I guess we all get it. The end. And there's a point where Andre 3000 is explaining to Kodo 7. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, come on, guys. You can just write it down. But the, the point is explaining to the newsporter. He's like, oh, but the turtles, and the turtles do this, and the turtles do that. And the reporter's like, oh, you know, like, people are, there's bigger problems in the world than turtles. He's like, nah, man, it's all connected. It's like, this is a bad viewpoint to take. And in that in same film. scene, he like, specifically <laughs> says, we don't have a problem with fair, like free trade. It just mm-hmm. has to be, like, ethical or something, which yeah. really is, like, at the root of the problem of, but like this movie and in a lot of ways, just like the anti-globalization movement as a whole, mm-hmm. right? Which is just that it's presenting a moral critique of capitalism. Exactly. That these things need oh. to be done with a bit more uh, democratic input, with a little bit less cruelty, and that overall, like this, if we listen to these massive people, that's problems. And along those out. same lines, I don't think they ever fully explained why 
like what the WTO was doing was bad, what they were doing in Seattle, like it, during that meeting on November 29th and 30th was bad. Like they never fully explained that narrative. I feel like they lost the plot in this movie from the get go very early on. I think if you were to sum up like how this film fails is that it tries to do way too much and ends up doing nothing at all. Well, this is why, like, starting... I disagree with that point. What it ends up doing <laughs> is it's a whole lot of fucking cop, like, apologists. Like, yeah, cops yeah. are just doing their jobs. They didn't really want to do this. We need to come together. Yeah, that's the other, the other half of that, I guess, is, like, it because it tries to cast such a wide net in, in I guess, in the... To, for the viewpoints it's sympathetic to. So again, starting at these very first principles, like Alex said, like, but, and, and spreading out the sort of these like 12 to 15 act, quote activist characters who yet we never really get any detail about who or what they are. Then when it sort of uh, switches gears to its other primary impulse, which is the liberal need to both sides everything. <laughs> um, it ends up telling those stories much more clearly. Um, and so what you get is uh, this, yeah, this cop narrative that is like reminiscent of how it's, it's like how um, America thinks about it's like war crimes, right? It's like, it really hurt us as much as it hurt them, you know. Like our our wounded our our wounded uh, soldiers coming home morally distressed because they napalmed, you know, villages. And that's the cop narrative here. There's so much sad man face in this movie. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> fuck! Off. There's I, so much. I somebody should if somebody should go through and CGI a tear falling from the face of every sad looking man a in super this movie cut <laughs> with yeah. CG tears. Yeah. Every I think every male. Uh, most of the, the primary male characters at one point or another in the movie have a moment where they're hanging their heads looking out a window or something. How looking, did it come to this? Yeah. yeah staring <laughs> like slightly north and like to the left of camera, right? Yeah. Did well, Michelle Rodriguez has a sad moment, but only after Jay has a sad moment. And then she has like a sad moment in correspondence or, you know, like in sympathy to his. Have a sad yeah. Together. yeah. Michelle they Rodriguez and Jay. They have a sad moment together in prison, in jail, in the King County Jail, presumably holding hands through their cells. <laughs> so they're, they're just sad together because of Jay, probably. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, she's ecstatic that he's shown up at all, right? That <gasps> Jay! She, the only thing she was sad about before was not knowing what became of, of Jay McElmore slash uh, low-rent McDreamy. Something I was also impressed by was the choreography of uh, the police's baton work. Um, is oh, there? Okay, so hold on, hold on. I think they probably practice on weekends together. So first, if you joke about that, but that's one hundred percent real, and they do practice on weekends together. And OT. That, yeah, that goes. OT. <laughs> yeah, and that goes back to. Uh, there's this whole philosophy of like overwhelming people. So when you're in a group, like if you move in unison, things like that, it makes your group seem larger. Oh, like the Nazis? No, no, actually it does 100%. Like, so Nazi SS units used to have uh, steel caps on the heels of their boots. So when they march in unison, there'd be this clap, clap, clap.
clap when they march. And so when people knew when they were coming through town, like motherfuckers going to die. Like, and so people would panic and they knew from the panic, like they would round people up and stuff like that. The police and the Nazis didn't originate this, but the police are working on that same sort of level of intimidation. And let me tell you, I mean, in Seattle going to like black lives matter stuff and stuff like that, they still do the clapping as they as they march if they're going to attack you, right? So it's kind of like this weird thing. Like sometimes they'll be quiet, sometimes they won't. When they're not, it's, you know, it's 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 too intimidating. So like specific, yeah, they do practice it and it's too intimidating. That's actually like a weird, realistic element. And let me tell you, when you're in front of them, it doesn't feel good. <laughs> like it, it definitely feels like they're coming to kick the shit out yeah. of you. Yeah, to Brian's yeah. point, like... Um, Brian uh, is much more knowledgeable on this than I am. I know that he's. Oh, thank you, Maddie. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I know that you studied this a little bit, and I I just know this from like going to a couple of like protests and uh, organizing a couple of them. But the the, the sense of uniformity like does mm-hmm. strike fear in people, and I have no doubt that that is intended to get people to fucking leave. Yeah. And the uniformity, you know, sometimes it's you know through having their batons and scraping them on the ground or their boots mm-hmm. or just all holding them in a pretty intimidating fashion. And, you know, some of the stuff, even from the archival footage that they were doing, they still do that shit mm-hmm. or they've adapted it to look more humane, but it's still intimidation. It's still dehumanizing. Um, and it's still the same old SPD, uh, you know? Well, the things of like, uh, you know, snapping your sticks on like your padding, right. To make a, a clapping noise and all that it's both to intimidate the crowd but it also is about like jacking up the participants right and you know for people on the left if you've ever been in a march and you've like really gotten into a chant right and stuff like that like you actually kind of get the crowd mechanics of this of like you know once we all get like going together and it's like a unified thing like we have this sort of powerful thing and that's the one like funny part of the movie is for Woody Harrelson, our cop we're supposed to sympathize with at one point he's in his riot gear and he just, you know, he's, he looks so conflicted and you know, Woody Harrelson's, you know, acting his best in quotation marks, but he's, he's looking very conflicted. He's looking at children. He doesn't know what's going on. But the thing is, if you ever deal with riot police, they never look like that. And part of that is actually the group sort of psychology of these rituals they engage in. And so by the time they encounter you, were there any point where they're like face to face with you, they're ready to kill. Like, so they, you know, any humanity has long since left their face. They're not going to look at children and go, oh, that little kid in the puffy jacket, you know, that's gone. That's that's long since gone. Absolutely. And like it kind of plays into a little bit um, uh, like elsewhere in the movie where you see Ray Liotta's character, the the mayor kind of talking about how like, Oh, we weren't supposed to arrest anyone today or we weren't supposed mm-hmm. to like beat the shit out of anyone today. Um, and uh, a topic that gets brought up a lot on the left is the issue of nonviolence. And I feel like this movie is does a really good job of kind of encapsulating the issue of nonviolence and how the state has a monopoly on nonviolence mm-hmm. and will ni- manipulate the shit out of organizations or organizers or just kind of amorphous groups that have a commitment to nonviolence. Well, in uh, this is actually like uh, just a useful question here too. So in the film for uh, our listeners who aren't watching it directly, but you should hit play and listen to this audio 
But in the film, at one point, Shane Tatum is uh, being criticized by his, uh, you know, whoever's in charge of his unit and is essentially punished by being told you need to dress in civilian clothes and run through the crowd taking tear gas from unit to unit because they've run out of tear gas. And he does appear at one point to, like, start chanting with the protesters. And this is an honest question. I think this is how confused the film is. Is he doing that because he is a plant or is he just being turned? I feel like the film is implying he's being turned by the protest. So. Like he's I getting think, excited. I, I think I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying would a cop be turned. I think that's what the film is implying. I don't the, even the, know. It's very incoherent. And then that character <laughs> drops out of the movie about 25 minutes before yeah. it ends. And you don't... <laughs> Too many characters in this film, by the way. But no. Media criticism. I, I uh, do think I, it seems like that is the intention. Maybe not in that first scene when he starts but that's the, supposed to be the first step on some minor like arc for the tater tot cop character mm-hmm. that then when he that he then later he gets beat up and that you know you can imagine him coming out of that radicalized in some way but i i wouldn't you can imagine that being the story that's trying to be told but I mean, really, like all this, the Woody Harrelson being distressed at having to beat children and old people and 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 uh, Tater Tot have, you know, being conflicted because he he gets in there and hears the chance or something and then gets beat up. This is all to sort of humanize the police side of the mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. in. I mean, what is that? What is the instinct there? I mean, why? It obviously guts the whole fucking thing. What? Why is? Why was that fucking unavoidable, Andrew? For this guy, for t- like, why? Why not make the cops the like fa- faceless boot of the state that they actually are? Uh, well, the movie is all about. I mean, it's chock full of like a dozen characters or something, and you can make a film that um, portrays like a collective group of people but they kind of have to be anonymous or you have to tell a story about a collective group rather than um, giving each person an arc or sort of story. And that's where it gets really ham-handed. And um, I'm sorry, I was really curious what had happened to Stuart Townsend since this film was released. And he since quit acting and now owns a car garage in Costa Rica. <laughs> so, uh, his biggest claim to fame before this movie was playing Lestat in Queen of the Damned. <laughs> Hell yeah. Oh, and I, yeah. It really makes me wonder, like, oh m- would Aaliyah have made a better <gasps> movie about the Battle of Sarah? <laughs> uh, perhaps. Uh, I mean, but my point being that this movie was made by somebody who really didn't understand the politics no, of no, what no. was going on in the yeah. street well, they're, they're, between the police and the protesters or the, or between the WTO and the rest of the world. Um, he didn't get it. And so he made it about the, it was these really trivial stories about individuals um, who, because there's so many of them, they get like two or three plot points and it all just becomes really Well, that I think is important. Like what this movie is about is just the protests. It's not, it's about this event and that act of protest of direct action. It's not about the politics at all. You can see this in the other sort of both sides characters, the doctors without borders, Slovenian guy, you pick this, uh, you know, ostensibly very sympathetic NGO and this guy who's just desperately trying to talk to the World Trade Organization delegates about um, changing their policies such that people will sell medicine cheaper in uh, 
the global south, basically. And the implication is that these protests have disrupted, you know, for all the good they may be doing or the good causes, these all these individual atomized causes that we don't ever have explained, the, you know, the environmental activists and whatever. Like, it's also there's this bad side where there's this other guy there who himself is in a way an activist who is trying to use the WTO to some positive effect. But if you had any actual critique or understanding of the uh, critique of global trade and neoliberalism of the WTO, of what people are out in the streets for, you'd know that this guy is wasting his fucking time. <laughs> like, it's a joke. He's sitting there talking, like um, begging the WTO to, you know, save people around the world. Like, they're actively involved in the opposite, so... And it's it's it'd be it's kind of fun to think about what how this film is a product of its political moment because it comes out in like 2007, right on the cusp of the Obama, you know, uh, the first Obama campaign. Well, the end of the and, Bush years. Yeah, the end of the mm-hmm. Bush years, and um, before the um, the economic crisis, 2008 yeah. economic crisis, before um, you know the rise of Trump and all that. And you think if you made the film today. Would you trade out some of the characters for, well, first a labor person, first of all, um, because economics are inescapable now from when you talk about issues like these. But also, would you try to shoehorn in a right wing figure? Because Patrick Buchanan was at this, was was a, prominently at the WTO protests, kind of came with this anti, this right wing anti-trade agenda that's been picked up by Trump. And it's like driving a lot of, at least Trump's rhetoric. Um, but all that's absent from the movie, and it really focuses on these individuals who, um, you know, who are ideological or, or morally driven. They don't even have an ideology. Yeah. They're just not that we're told about or that right. they espouse mm-hmm. it anyway. Well, yeah, I, I think that does lead into just like a more wider discussion of sort of the anti-globalization movement at that time, and like where did it lead and what did it accomplish? You know, if it could ultimately give way to the sort of like reactionary xenophobic nationalism of the Trump moment. You know, was it ever really being put across coherently to begin with? Because when we're talking about globalization, even that term is sort of a, a canard or, a, you know, it's sort of a, a just a term of obfuscation to sort of trumpet the idea of capitalist, you know, uh, hegemony, where that globalization really just means... Well, as something to oppose, it means nothing. That if you really want to take on the forces that are here, you have to start speaking in terms of anti-imperialism. And thinking about, like, sort of, you know, the capitalist drive to expand beyond borders, even, you know, the sort of Leninist idea of imperialism that, Mm -hmm. you know, when uh, capital comes into monopolies and financialization, it'll move surplus capital into other places to develop and, you know, extract profit from there. And that that sort of like that anti-capitalist critique was really not present right. in that movement. There's some key words. There's some activist keywords that get thrown around. You hear nonviolence. You hear consensus. You don't yeah. hear the word solidarity. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Maybe I missed it, but I didn't hear the word solidarity, no, which is so. th- to the, the extent that the WTO protests were a success, to the extent that there was something important and about them, it was, it was solidarity 
of labor with a lot of other interests, and then um, across borders, mm. and um, that's completely absent from the. Well, the, the international component, other than the guy at the very end standing up and giving a speech, who, mm-hmm. it's even kind of unclear where he's from. Like the international component is completely gone, and I think that um, one, I think it's strategic on Townsend's you know, side to, to sort of like paint these people as environmentalism, which he sees as a moral cause as opposed to a political cause. Now, you know, that's not reality, but that's his sort of view, but like to avoid uh, a sort of political standpoint, right? That this is a, you know, protest against sort of rampant neoliberalism and things like that. At the same time too, at the time it was probably equally confused by, as Greg said, I mean, this was end of history shit. And, I remember meeting my first like communist in like 2003 and feeling like I had met uh, like a, a member of an extinct species, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, it, it did seem like for normies a completely, uh, you know, the idea of criticizing capitalism was just completely out of bounds, you know, and this film actually, I think kind of captures some of that from the director's standpoint that uh, maybe has some reality on the ground at the time, mm-hmm. but is yeah. like completely just like incidentally captured by the director's own inability to have a critique of capitalism. To, just to, to Brian's point, I think like even though this movie was kind of funded independently and stuff, it was still a movie produced and directed by people who aren't, in my opinion, uh, self-described Cap, uh, communists or socialists, you know, um, and that's kind of what you see in the movie. Um, I think that's why you see a lack of, uh, you know, the term solidarity thrown around. That's why you see people kind of uh, apologizing for police brutality after they were brutalized by the police when they're mm-hmm. sitting yeah. in yeah. a fucking jail cell. Came to apologize. I was way out of line. My wife and I lost our baby. I know that's no excuse, but I just, that's... I'm really sorry. Really, really, really sorry. So... I don't blame you. I mean, I, I do, but... Shit, you're not the problem. You're just doing your job, I guess. And the people that I'm really trying to fight, you know, the ones that destroy so much. They hurt so many lives. Not just one. Literally millions. And nobody ever points a gun at them. You know, they just seem so unaccountable. Untouchable. Just seems kind of fucked that you're... (laughs) You and me are the ones that have to fight each other. Um, Which is actually normally not the reaction of people after they've been brutalized by the police, which is... When they're still sitting in a jail cell. Yeah, which is a good time to radicalize them, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like uh, we've identified that maybe some of the, like, shortcomings of this movie are were maybe reflected in that the actual movement itself in some ways like so what to what extent is that true 
And what is the effect of N30? What came after that? What do we think about that movement now? Well, the movement was completely transformed by, by world events that were outside the movement. I mean, um, 9-11, first of all. Yeah. Um, the Iraq War. Um, you know, and then the, you know, the Obama administration um, sucking up, I think, a lot of energy people. Um, and, and then um, the financial crisis. I mean, so the, the, I, think, I, I think a lot about what happened to the organizers who were, who were on the streets doing that stuff. And I think a lot of them have continued to do... I mean, a, a lot of them are like the Jay figure. They're like professional, you know, moralizing protesters who kind of continue to do the same thing. But I, I'm sure if when a historian revisits this, they'll be able to, to, to trace people who were on the streets organizing then through all the movements that came after and kind of draw connections. Because I do think there, was, there has been real momentum, at least in the United States and probably globally, um, since those, that wave of um, you know, global, the global justice movements that the WTO protest was a part of. I mean, again, the WTO protest was important not because of that the protest happened or that there were riots. It was because it was in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. That kind of level of protest happens in Europe, in the the global Mm -hmm. South all the time. It was just that it it meant so much that it had happened in the United States. Wait, are you that it, the that it made behind on this. <laughs> I mean, that it made headlines. I'm not saying yeah, yeah, that it was, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. Um, well, a number of people. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. so. Then the other, you know, the flip side of that is the way that you know movement strategies and political organizing has evolved since then. Because I think it, it really was that end of history mentality where communism was completely off the table and people weren't thinking along those terms and it was way more you know sort of this movementist type thing of a a loose association of affinity groups all working together and the idea that at some point if you got enough people of enough different persuasions just out together that would reach a sort of critical mass without any sort of programmatic you know approach to politics and so you know people were talking about rhizomes and multitudes and deterritorialization. And I think since the 2008 crisis, there's been such a reawakening, oh, you know, there's been a re-proletarianization of so many people that class consciousness is really emerging and we're able to put forth a much more coherent anti-capitalist critique against these sorts of, uh, you know, global financial forces. Along those same lines, I think two things that I kind of wanted to hone in on are... Um, the revitalization of the socialist movement in the U.S. You see organizations like the DSA and then organizations like Socialist Alternative um, both having electoral wins across the U.S. Locally, you see Shama Sawant, and then the DSA is having electoral wins kind of across the U.S., whether it's um, on the West Coast in California with Cheza Budin um, and Dean Preston, and then all across you know, Chicago, they have like six aldermen now. Um, they have enough to have a um, socialist caucus. They have like 45 aldermen in Chicago, so they do have different caucuses um, among their city council type setup there. Um, but it's, it's kind of cool to see a resurgence of a, a working class electoral movement. On the other hand, it's interesting that a, a big theme in Battle for Seattle, the movie, uh, or Battle in Seattle, the movie, is 
drug prices. Um, you see that kind of Slovenian guy talking about um, drug prices to the WTO delegates all the time. And one of the biggest um, calls to action right now is Medicare for all. And you see that popularized uh, um, amongst the two biggest front runners, Elizabeth Warren. And of course, I think everyone's fave here right now, I would hope, Bernie Sanders. Um, so I think that we've come a long way. I think right now, we do have a lot of organizing to do. Um, lastly, I do also want to point out in the movie, you see um, the MLK Labor Council seemingly being pitted against the cops. We have definitely backslided from that. I don't know <laughs> if that's an accurate portrayal. Um, I'm not a, a, a source of authority on that. I know that that is not accurate today. And labor, of course, uh, I would hope everyone in the room right now, uh, listeners at home, if you don't know, uh, the MLK Labor Council definitely basically does whatever the Seattle Police Officers Guild wants. Um, so that's something that we definitely have to work on. Well, you know, Spog had a seat on the Labor Council at the time then, too. So, you know, I think the one thing that's interesting about the labor... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that's interesting about the labor stuff in the film is the complete excise of the sort of labor march in the sense that I remember watching the documentary in 2003 and being like really impressed and inspired. Uh, I remember there was like uh, a shot of the United Steelworkers and some guy holding up this like uh, foam steel beam or whatever, and you know, giving some speech while doing that and all this kind of stuff and being like really impressive, like, you know, like, wow, that feels like we can actually do something. But in that sort of end of history moment, the idea was always, you know, the, the anti-communism that it was created in the United States, you know, post uh, Cold War was always that like, look, if we're going to have activism, it has to be outside of labor. All right. You know, like work is sacrosanct and people have to go and do their jobs and do whatever. If you want to be an activist, you can do it through consumerism or you can do it through uh, pointless, like walking through the street. And the film kind of buys into a lot of that. And the sad part is, is that there are a lot of protests at the time that don't have this labor component, right? That you could have had that in. But the thing about the WTO protest in 99 that was actually very nice was the labor component. And like that is, you know, for all the criticisms of the American labor movement, it was great that they were there and to not uh, hit on that in any way. I felt like it was just, it was just part of a moment of just like, Hey, no, we don't believe in labor anymore. Really? Like, you know, we're, we're all consumers now. Who cares? The enemy of those protests, the, is the sort of neoliberal global order, right? That is, like could be represented almost by the current American administration at that time, uh, the Clinton administration. Um, and you can imagine if things carried forward as a lot of people probably thought they would very much in that vein, um, say in Dur and Al Gore administration, um, the very much the same thing. You, maybe you could have had momentum to carry for the same kind of political action. Um, but instead we had a, you know, a really baffling and I think dispiriting thing in um, 2001 and in 2000 with, you know, George Bush being appointed by the Supreme Court, then 9-11, then all possible 
political action being sort of wrapped up in trying to prevent the invasion of Iraq um, in 2003, that failing and that just taking the wind out of fucking everything. Um, and then being a on being at, unable to critique capitalism at the at same all time revealing sort of the limits of protest yeah, as absolutely. a tool of change yeah. right that yeah. the, the reason that the anti-war movement really just came to nothing was that that was the tool in the toolbox was to go out yeah. into the streets as a protest and hope that mm -hmm. they would hear your voice that you would make a mo right, morally righteous point and not that you would be able to seize and leverage any power over the situation to bring it to an end yeah. sounds like this movie that we watched. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. right? And I think that's the, uh, I guess, you know, as somebody who didn't remember maybe the protests from the time period, but remembers it mainly as this, like, relic of the anti-war movement, I guess this is kind of, you know, as I laugh derisively at shit in the movie, like, this is my kind of, like, anger with the film, is that we all watched the documentary on the WTO, and we're like, well, this is how you do it, or whatever, and we went and we marched in the street, and George W. Bush said, I know I don't listen to focus groups and laughed and the war happened anyways. Right. And it, that kind of thing happened again and again, right. Throughout the, uh, aughts that kind of, you know, should have taught us a lesson about like, look, it really isn't like who goes on the streets. It makes the best puppets, right. There has to be some sort of leveraging of power and I guess that's the disappointing part about the labor movement stuff in there and that, you know, it, it would have been great to like highlight, you know, highlight some of that more. I mean, we just, you know, yeah. Well, I mean, we don't, don't want to sell short what an accomplishment the WTO protests were. Sure. When they yeah. shut, I mean, they did shut down the meetings. Mm -hmm. They did have an effect on the wheel. I mean, mm -hmm. on the functioning of power that can't be forgotten, but I think the which you're, you're right that the mm -hmm. symbolism kind of sometimes mm -hmm. gets fetishized or even the process mm -hmm. of, you know, consensus meetings and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. People are often prioritizing that over what's the actual impact yeah. on power. How are you building power and maintaining it? And, um, you know, I think in the, the anti-war movements, there were moments when people were shutting down ports, mm -hmm. stop mm -hmm. shipments. Mm -hmm. um, you Which know, was the kind of thing we should have been accentuating. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah. yeah, and so there was some of that, but, right, the, the I think... People shouldn't forget because of the size of the WTO process. It wasn't the size that was mm -hmm. that mattered. I mean, fifty thousand people could have come and gone, and it could have been quiet, and people would have forgotten about it. Became, mm -hmm. But it became a world historical event when people shut down the meeting in the streets, when mm -hmm. they broke windows, when they, uh, you know, made it an international incident. So, but Andrew isn't yeah. breaking windows violence. Uh, in this town, <laughs> another it is. podcast, another podcast. Yeah, that's every um, episode of this podcast. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I think maybe an interesting way to maybe view the lessons from '99 and the Iraq War stuff is for you know uh, probably a lot of us went down to like Occupy events and stuff like that, but I think that fetishization of process was like at the heart of a lot of the Occupy stuff too, of like the you know, we're going to do, you know, we're going to engage in the process and hopefully it comes out okay, as opposed to having like strong critiques and, you know, an actual challenge to any sort of political power. But I'd be kind of curious for people who maybe have been in some, went to some of those events as well, sort of what their thoughts were. I was involved in those events and I reached the conclusion that I've been advocating here that I think it's sort of 
totalized, unified movement is what's necessary, that we need to really sort of re-embrace the communist necessity, for lack of a better word, that, you know, if uh, capitalism continues, it uses up the, it ex annihilates the base of existence, and that really uh, the sort of disunified uh, movementist strategy that has sort of been, I think, the dominant trend of the left for so long really needs to be overcome. And I think we're in an encouraging moment where that's starting to happen. I mean, let's also um, you know, not forget that state power became so much more brutal, not only after 99, yeah. um, which, it, mm -hmm. you know, street protests became impossible on the level that the WTO, you know, that happened at the WTO, but after 2001, mm -hmm. um, you know, with um, the Patriot Act and um, the resources that the national security state has to, you know, track and hound people. So I think st we also can't... Uh, underscore capitalism completely, but don't forget the reality of state power and that they're not always, um, you know, there's a dynamic between the two. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I think we could sum this up here. Um, fuck the movie. It's dumb. Doesn't matter. Like, final <laughs> thoughts on this, the 20th anniversary of uh, the WTO protests in Seattle. Solidarity. If you're going to... If you're going to watch a WTO movie, this is what democracy looks like. Revisit that. Yes. Watch it over yeah. and over it's, and over it's quite again. Good. Well, uh, maybe we should give it a second and just talk about that movie for just a half second. Please. God. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's the voice of activists. It's yeah. film. It's, it's footage from the, from the, um, the events itself. Um, it, it has not law. It's made. Maybe there's too much rage against the machine in the movie. I don't know, it's, <laughs> but it's it's inspiring. It's mm -hmm. um, accurate. Um, it, it's not dated. It's it it doesn't have Macklemore in it. Uh, it's great. <laughs> so. Yeah, I'll say the depiction of the response to is more visceral than in this fictionalized film where you can actually choose shots and stuff. No tanks are running up and down the street in this movie, but in uh, the documentary they are. Um, there's also a hilarious kind of like uh, upper middle class couple who <laughs> ends up getting just randomly rounded up and put on a prison bus who are like, man, the police might be bad. It's the funniest fucking thing in the whole thing, but yeah, it's worth watching. Susan Sarandon's in it. Yeah, she has a voiceover. Yeah, so... Yeah. But yeah. she's not acting. She's no, there's not. no acting. It <laughs> is a documentary. <laughs> Biggest difference. This is a movie. Yeah, yeah. She's uh, a, this is what do uh, Democracy Looks Like documentary. What we watched in a reviewing this evening was a movie. So big difference. Yeah. yeah. Documentaries are movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> also, Susan Sarandon, National Treasure, protector on Twitter. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Rage Against the Machine, did you see where Tom Morello tweeted? Yeah. How he's like, I went to Star Wars Land at Disneyland, and they were like, oh, it's not every day we get a general of the resistance in here. Oh, and I felt so proud. And then I was like, they say that to fucking everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Groans oh, all around. Sucks. Oh, man. Uh, Great. All right. Um, well, cool. Yeah, thank you all for being here. Um, I'm just going to go around the table for one last thing. Is there anything that you want to plug. So Alex, is there anything you want to shout out or plug? Uh, yeah, hell yeah. Uh, stop destroying Seattle one building at a time. <laughs> Next time like you see a giant 
piece of construction equipment tearing down a perfectly functional building, think to yourself, uh, how is that any different than an anarchist breaking a window of Starbucks? <laughs> and One's so a fight the against the, you know, the destruction of our city wholesale. <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming on. Um, having anything to add that I haven't already said. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. Tommy, how about you? Well, let me shill for a business. Yeah, please Go do. Go to the Beacon Cinema on 4405 Rainier Avenue South and see films, which I program there. Yeah, they're fantastic. Uh, well, specifically. Also, yeah, especially. Oh, specifically, December <laughs> se- 11th. 11th. December Wednesday. 11th, Wednesday, 7 December o'clock. 11th, 7 p.m. Never forget. Seattle Sucks Podcast presents Class of 1999, uh, a dystopian look <laughs> at the real Seattle of 1999. Yeah. Where, um, yeah, look at what we could have had, but now we're here. <laughs> where, uh, I guess Android <laughs> cops uh, annihilate the children of the high school kids of Seattle. Well, <laughs> yeah, what is this? I haven't seen this movie. In it's Seattle's <laughs> most dangerous free fire zone, uh-huh. and a military contractor has a new project to bring it in line. Great, cool. Yeah, That's a nice documentary. Then it's a documentary. documentary. Yeah. <laughs> um, all I have to plug is the Seattle Democratic Socialists of America. We meet uh, often. Uh, we have a lot of great Bernie Sanders work going on. So if you're a fan of that guy, there's canvassing going on at South Seattle Community College uh, pretty frequently. And then also different kind of one-off events. Uh, Seattle DSA also has meetings every first Tuesday of the month. Our next one is coming up December 3rd. Those are always at Washington Hall. We're also planning a holiday party that's likely going to be on December 21st or 22nd. Details coming soon. Check out our website. We have a really detailed events calendar. Follow me on Twitter, at Father Queerist. Cool. Awesome. Well, yeah. Yeah. Alex, Tommy, Maddie, Andrew, thank you again for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And I guess happy Thanksgiving. I don't know. Yeah. Is that a thing we celebrate? Like, fuck that holiday. Yeah. Well, yeah, but uh, hopefully this and our Thanksgiving special has helped you pass the time wherever you are, traveling wherever you are, tuning out your family. Uh, hopefully this has helped. 